the perfect church. Some people are always seeking for that perfect place. They never land or connect or identify with a local assembly because it's just not perfect. And you've heard the old adage, haven't you? If you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. When you read the website of some churches, you begin to think they think they're perfect. The website touts wonderful, dynamic preaching, Holy Spirit miracles, the presence of God. You look at their programs and everything's fantastic and awesome and stupendous and unbelievable. Their promotional brochure has only positive and fantastic things to say about what they're doing. You begin to think that these people think they're perfect churches. I'm so glad we don't have the Oscars for churches. Can you imagine that ridiculous scene? Now, there's the Dove Awards for Christian music, but imagine the Peter Awards, the Oscars for churches. The greatest church in America this year is such and such a church, and people applaud, and the pastor comes up and with feigned humility said, well, there's a lot of other good churches, but we are a great church, and we're so glad to be honored this way. And the preacher is honored for the best sermon series ever preached, you know. He gets up there and says, I've been nominated other times, should have won, but now I'm glad I finally have got justification. I hardly know what to say. And how sad that would be. There are no perfect churches, but there is a model church, and it's called the Church in Thessalonica. Here's the passage that is kind of a theme verse for us as we study 1 Thessalonians. It comes out of chapter 1, verse 7. And the Apostle Paul said, you have become a model to all believers, whether it's in northern Greece or southern Greece, Macedonia, Achaia. You're the model church. That word model is tupas, which means type or pattern or example. We mentioned last week, it's like uh, someone making a suit of clothes, a dress, and they get a pattern and they put it on the cloth and they cut away everything that's extraneous, everything that's superfluous, all that should not be used to make that final, wonderful, beautiful suit or dress. And so there is a pattern here in the life of this church that can become for us something to mimic and something to follow and something to emulate. Are they perfect? No, but they're a good pattern. And so we want to see why God calls them a model church and even pray that somehow we might grow toward this wonderful objective. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The name of our series is A Faith Worth Following. And we take it from this verse, chapter 1, verse 7. Here is a faith worth emulating, a model worth mimicking. Let's see if we can be more like this church at Thessalonica. So we begin our reading, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me stop right here. I have to correct an error last week. I was talking about the fact that in the original language, when you talk about two people and you 
join them with the word and. In the Greek, it's chi. But there's only one definite article, that the definite article for the one means that the two individuals are the same. And that is a true rule that is repeated over in Scripture. However, it's not the definite article in this verse. It's the preposition in. They are in God, but there's not a second mention of the word in Christ. But it is implied because the first prep preposition dominates the second uh, individual as well. So they are in God, and they are equally in Christ. And this can be proven throughout Scripture because often Paul's phrase is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We tried to emphasize that true Christians live in two worlds, a citizenship on earth, they were in Thessaloniki, and a citizenship in heaven, we believers are in God and we are in Christ. That location gives us wonderful serenity. That location gives us perfect safety. And that is the place where we will live and dwell forever and ever, in God and in Christ. When Paul wanted to describe unbelievers, he said, you are without God. You are outside of God and the household of faith. We go on reading in verse 2. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers, Paul says. You know, he started the church in his second missionary journey. They were led by a vision to go to Europe, and they had the ministry in Philippi, and then there was the ministry in Thessalonica, and the church grew. He was only there three weeks. In fact, it might have been just two weeks and three Sabbath days. He was there just a short time, but the church was birthed by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Then Paul fled because of persecution. He fled from Thessalonica just six miles to the west to Berea, but the jealous Jews from Thessalonica followed him. And he couldn't continue on ministry there, so he went south 250 miles to Athens. After a brief and fruitful ministry in Athens, he went to Corinth, 50 miles to the west. He sent Timothy up to see how the church was doing in Thessalonica. They came back, Timothy and the group came back and said, they're doing well, they're standing firm. That's described in chapter 2, Timothy's report. Chapter 3, some. Standing firm in the faith. And Paul was so grateful, he writes his letter to commend them, 1 Thessalonians. So he spends the first three chapters kind of revisiting his visit, remembering his trip to them and the wonderful fellowship and what God had done. And then the last two chapters, he casts a vision for them. And he says, you're doing good, do more. You're loving, love more. You're walking in faith, I want to see more of it. Grow in grace. You're well-grounded, now keep growing. That's the message of 1 Thessalonians. So he says in verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that wonder, wonderful, glorious triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And notice these virtues are productive. Faith works. Love toils, and hope inspires us to endure. 
and they were doing that and that's why Paul gives thanks it took the seed of the Word of God they planted in the hearts of the Thessalonians took produced roots and began to grow fruit verse 4 for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you we mentioned that this idea of election is a difficult concept but it's one that we should not ignore because it's seen throughout the scriptures and we're going to deal with it a little more when we get to chapter 2 but I want you to notice in verse 4 that election is always connected with love brethren he loves you and that's why he has chosen you you are loved and chosen of God what rich blessings for any child of God to understand and at least to begin to appreciate how much God loves you and the reason why Paul could know the secret decree of God in election was not because he had some apostolic insight it was because they gave evidence their faith gave evidence of being real he says verse 5 because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction you know how we lived among you for your sake you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering you welcome the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia as I read over chapter 1 again this week I was impressed with the effect of the gospel message in this wonderful little church a model church is a church that has believed the gospel it lives the gospel and it shares the gospel that's a model church in fact you notice in uh, verse 4 the message or the gospel was presented to them verse 4 says God loves you he's chosen you verse 5 our gospel came to you it was presented to you the gospel message the word gospel simply means good news like good news to a prisoner who was told your sentence is over you can go free or good news to someone who's unemployed when someone comes to them and says I've got a job for you you can start today that's good news or good news to someone who is sick and they're convinced they're dying but the doctor comes in and says we found the medicine we know what your problem is tomorrow you will be healed that's good news and the gospel message is good news to the person bound in sin to the person who has no provision for life to the person who is dying and under the sentence of God's just judgment the gospel says God loves you so much that even though you're sinned and the penalty of sin sin hangs over you I have sent my son to be your Savior he will stand in your stead taking your punishment on the cross and all who turn from their sin and believe in him are forgiven you will be released from bondage you'll be provided everything you need eternal life and more that's good news and Paul and Silas when they left Philippi and went all the way to Thessaloniki 
There they proclaimed the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now notice, they say it's our gospel. Our gospel came to you, Thessalonians. Why would the apostles call it our gospel? I mean, if you look over at chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 8, it's called the gospel of God. And it is the gospel of God because he's the, the originator of it, the inventor of it. It's the gospel of God because he is the one who de designed the plan. In chapter 3, verse 2, it's called the gospel of Christ because he is the executor of the plan. He is the one who fulfills the plan. He's the one who came to die in our place, to shed his blood and give his life. He's our elder brother. He is our savior. He is our Lord. It's the gospel of Christ. Where does Paul get off saying, it's our gospel? Well, let me give you two reasons for that perspective. First of all, because Paul was commissioned and authorized to preach it. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Paul said, we've been approved by God. We've been commissioned by God and entrusted with the gospel. And that is why we speak. I mean, how will they hear if someone doesn't come and share them the gospel? How will they believe if they don't hear the gospel? How will someone preach unless they are sent? And while there's nothing wrong with all of us sharing the gospel, God has ordained and equipped some people to go forth and proclaim the gospel. Paul, especially the apostles, were entrusted with that gospel, and they went forth to preach it. And Paul could say, this is my gospel, because I've been called. But Paul could say it was his gospel because he embraced it and believed it. He wasn't preaching something that he was unfamiliar with. He wasn't preaching someone, something that he was not acquainted with. He wasn't preaching the truth that he had never personalized. And frankly, there are some people who preach from pulpits, and they might say religious things. They might be connected on the fringe of the gospel, but they've never believed the gospel, and yet they want to preach the gospel. Imagine a cook who never eats his own food. Would you eat it? I would be somewhat suspicious. What's this with congressmen and senators, our representatives? They don't participate in Social Security, but they tell everyone else, you have to do it. Does, does that give you any degree of question? How come you guys aren't in this program that you've designed and enforced on everyone else, is the question. Interesting question. Imagine someone preaching who has never embraced the gospel themselves. I wonder, is the gospel of Christ your gospel? That is, have you personally received Jesus? Have you trusted him? Have you embraced his message? It's our gospel. They go on to say that this gospel, verse 5, came with words. Paul says it didn't only come with words, but it did come with words. In fact, the word message in verse 6 and the word message in verse 8 are both from the Greek word logos, which means word. 
It's the message of the gospel. It's the word of God, or as it's described in verse 8, the Lord's message, the word of the Lord. So there is content to be delivered. There is truth to be proclaimed. And when truth is proclaimed, there is error that is also acknowledged because it's not true. There's a message that needs to be conveyed to our generation, and it's the truth of the good news of God's saving grace. And that's the message we need to proclaim, the word of the Lord, the message of the gospel. But it didn't come with words only. It came with power, verse 5 says. There was this power, and I think it's the power resident in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's power in the gospel. Romans 1 says, we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God. So the message has power, but the message must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And when the apostles preached the message of good news in Thessalonica, the Holy Spirit came through with power, the power of conviction, the power to make the word live, the power for people hearing it to understand, the power to change cold hearts into warm hearts and to woo and draw people and to illuminate so they could understand, apprehend, and embrace the message. The Bible tells us in John 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. Of sin because you haven't believed in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. In other words, there's a standard of perfect righteousness that I have achieved. Mankind has fallen short, but God has accepted that standard by taking me into heaven. And the Holy Spirit will convict of judgment to come because the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit, when the word of God is preached, tells us that we are sinners, shows us that we fall short of God's righteous standard, and assures us there's a coming day of judgment. So when you hear someone preach the word and you get a little uneasy in your heart, your heart begins to feel like uh, he's speaking to me and your conscience is pricked. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you by his power. By the way, if we don't have the Holy Spirit in our services, these are worse than vain. These services can become destructive. That's why there's a group of people who pray while these services are going on. In one of the rooms in this building, they're praying for this service to be anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. They're praying that these words of mine will not be mine, but God's word or whoever is preaching conveyed to us. They're praying that the Spirit of God will draw people to himself and save people. And all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So brethren, pray. And that's when holy manna is spread all around. The power of the Holy Spirit needs to accompany the faithful preaching of the word of God. And the gospel grabs hold, grabs hold of hearts. And then the last phrase is that this gospel was presented to us with deep conviction. Now I really think that deep conviction refers to those who were preaching the message to the preachers 
It might refer to those who received it. But you'll notice the next phrase, you know how we lived among you for your sake? You see, Paul was being attacked by the jealous Jews, the Jews from Philippi and other places, that you're in this for yourself. You have your own agenda, selfish goals. You hope to gain some money, prestige, followers, whatever it is. You're not preaching the truth. And Paul says, you know our manner among you. In fact, when you go to chapter 2, the Apostle Paul goes deep into his manner of ministry, his method of ministry. He said we were like a mother nourishing a child, like a father encouraging his children. There's no trickery. There's no deceit. We preach the truth with integrity, not trying to please men but God. So Paul says, you know how we were among you. We came with passion. We're convinced of these things. They're true, and we proclaim them to you. I think there's also deep conviction upon those who hear the word and embrace it, or some translations have it, much assurance that happens. So the message was presented to them. It was the word of God with the power of the Spirit and deep conviction. And what happened? Well, secondly, we read the message was welcomed by them. That's verse 6. You became imitators of us. In spite of suffering, you welcomed the word, the gospel, the message, and you received it with joy. Notice, the message was welcomed by them in spite of their suffering. And was, this was not just suffering. This was severe suffering, we're told in verse 6. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, You brothers, you imitated or followed the example of the churches which are in Judea. In what way? You suffered the same things from your countrymen, from your own relatives and friends, that they suffered back in Judea. So all we need to do is do a little research in the book of Acts and find out what kind of suffering the churches of Judea experienced, and we come up with something like this. Some are all of this, the loss of friends and family. When one believes the gospel, it separates. The loss of property confiscated because the authorities have the ability to come and take everything you, you own or say you own if you don't act properly, believe properly. The loss of employment, a job, your standing, your reputation, all of that taken away. Then there is the physical threats of beatings, incarceration, and even death. I don't know exactly what they were experiencing in Thessalonica, but it was some of this, and it was severe. And they still welcomed the message. Isn't that amazing? They still took it in. You don't want to know what they were suffering. Think of African Americans in the South during the Jim Crow days. When someone might burn a cross on their lawn to intimidate or throw a matov cocktail through the window to burn their houses down or see one of their friends or families hanging from a tree lynched. That kind of persecution is what the church was going through. And yet they believed. A model church is a suffering church. 
And in the midst of the suffering, they endure. Notice, though, not only was there suffering, they received the message or welcomed the message with joy. You see, the Holy Spirit brings joy, not just conviction, but wonderful contentment. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, right? The nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, the second one is joy. And if you want to know a good text to put together with that song that was sung earlier in the worship service about the streams and rivers of water flowing, think of John chapter 7. For Jesus is the one who said, if you believe in me, out of your heart, innermost being, will flow streams of living water. This he said of the Holy Spirit. When you believe the Holy Spirit is placed in your heart and now you have the source of joy, not dependent upon circumstances, one that triumphs over them, the Holy Spirit is in you. They welcomed the message in spite of suffering with great joy because the Holy Spirit was at work. And then they became imitators. The first part of verse 6. They imitated us, the apostles, and imitated the Lord in spite of the suffering. The Greek word for imitate is mimic. And they just took the Greek word and transliterated it and invented a new English word, which they've done with many of our words. Mimic. Now, right away, I think of the word mimic in negative terms. I remember those times when I'd be sitting in the back seat of our car when we were going on a family vacation, and uh, my sister was in the middle and my brother was on the side, and we were all in the back seat together. It was a big car, but we were squeezed in. And, you know, just to torment my sister, I would repeat whatever she would say. I would mimic her. Your kids have never done that, I'm sure, but I did growing up. And my parents, God bless them, were gracious people, but my dad had a boiling point sooner than my mom. And there were times he would stop the car and turn around. I can remember his face flush with anger as he said, stop mimicking your sister. And I did. And so I had this negative connotation of being a mimic. A mimic seems like someone who's not themselves. You know, you don't have enough creativity. You don't have enough ability to kind of be your own voice. You've just got to do what someone else does. There's a lot of negative cast on that word mimic. But the positive side is if you have a good model like Jesus or Paul, it's good to follow them. Notice they mimicked us first, the apostles, and then they mimicked the Lord. Sometimes you need a flesh and blood example of what godliness is all about, don't you? I urge each one of you to get a mentor and spend some time with that mentor. This past week when we were in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, I was with the seniors and they were doing one activity and I broke off on my own to go visit one of my mentors who's in a rest home retirement center, Willow Valley Retirement Center, and his name is Haddon Robinson. Dr. Haddon Robinson preached here, I think back in the year, I don't know, 2001 or three, something like that. One of the greatest teachers of preachers that I've ever known or heard of. And his health is bad, and I thought this may be the last time I get to see Haddon. So I just went over there, and the Lord met, led me right to this place in the big complex where he was having physical therapy. 
And I was able to talk with him, and then he and his wife, Bonnie, invited me to their house, and I sat for an hour talking to Haddon. He's a bit forgetful. He can't preach anymore because his voice is too soft. He remembered Dr. Sugden, and we talked about the past, and things began to come back to his memory, and I went out of that place praising God for this mentor. Flesh and blood example of what it is to live godly in Christ Jesus. And there are a lot of preachers who mimic Haddon Robinson because he's a good model. The Apostle Paul once said in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you therefore, brethren, to mimic me. Remember the first time I read that, I thought, where does, where does he get off saying that? Sounds really egotistical. And I wonder if someone didn't come to him and say, Paul, you know, you need to moderate that a little bit. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. Okay, that makes sense. Follow me as I follow Christ. Would you say to people around you, follow me, do what I do? If you're following Christ, you can. But remember, the real person we need to mimic is Jesus because no person is perfect, right? If you were going to tune a hundred pianos. Do you tune the first one and then tune the second one to the first one and then tune the third one to the second one and keep tuning each piano to the one before it? No. By the end, you'd have a piano out of tune. You tune all of them to the same pitch pipe, right? To the same note. And that way, you get the true sound. Although we need earthly mentors, we all must mimic Jesus. I was sharing this illustration in the first service, and I said, got words mixed up in my mind, and, you know, you have a, uh, you have a, a pitch pipe and a tuning fork. And I said that you need to tune yourself to the, uh, to the pitch fork. <laughs> and I never caught it until afterward. Even now I have to read the words or I'm going to say the wrong thing. It's the pitch pipe. That's Jesus. The rest of us might be pitchforks. But the closer you get to Jesus, the better people can follow you. And that's what they did. They imitated one another. So we come to the last thing about the message. The message was presented to them. The message was welcomed by them. And now the message is going to ring out from them. The message rang out from them to the whole world. Verse 7, you became a model, a model to all believers in the north and in the south. What kind of a model are we as a church to other churches? And, and now notice their witness, verse 8, was local, national, and global. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia, that's local, and Achaia, that's national, still in Greece, but to every part of the world. And that's the way our witness needs to be, local, regional, national, global. Look at the map here, and you can see quickly, again, these regions. Thessalonica is number five. That's in the region of Macedonia. Philippi is also in that same area, as is Berea. And their witness, their testimony was so strong, everyone heard about it in their region, in their own locality. But it traveled down south to Achaia, where you have Athens, and you have Corinth, and the people there, this would be nationally, they heard about it. But then it went global, 
It went across the sea and affected Asia and probably all the way back to Judea. The testimony of their faith rang out. And the Greek word used in verse 8 for something ringing out is the word exos, where we get the English word echo. It could be just a bell, or it could be a trumpet, like Glenn would play. <laughs> or it could be the boom of great thunder. This word was used for all of it, but whatever it was, there was a noise that had reverberations throughout the world. Wouldn't it be great if there was such a noise here in Lansing that from South Church, her testimony went local and regional and national and global? Well, it does through our missionaries. But is our testimony so impactful that it affects others? The greatest evangelistic technique is a band of believers living like Jesus. It's not, you know, using the media and the internet. Those things are okay. But the most effective evangelistic technique, as John Stott said, is holy gossip. But gossip's powerful. If I told you today, hey, I've got a little dirt on one of our political leaders, I don't want you to tell anyone, but I'll tell you. You people would run from here, some of you, and say to your friend, listen, don't tell anybody else, but this is what our pastor said. And then pretty soon, all of Michigan would know. Maybe the best way to preach the gospel is to say, I've got some good, for, good news for you from God. Don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself. And then we'd go out and say, hey, I'm not supposed to tell you, but let me tell you. This is a day of good tidings. Remember that Old Testament story of the lepers who were outside of Samaria? There was a famine in the land. The enemy surrounded the city. Death on the inside. These lepers have disease. They're going to die. They couldn't go into the city. They'd already been ostracized. They'd die there anyhow. They couldn't go to the enemy or they would die. They had three choices, to die, to die, or to die. So they choose death by way of the enemy. They said, let's go to the enemy. Maybe the enemy will have mercy. So the lepers go to the enemy, and when they get to the camp, no one's there. God had caused a sound, and everyone left. And they had, before their very eyes, the best, the grandest, the most awesome buffet they had ever seen. And they went from tent to tent, gorging themselves, plate after plate, until finally they had to sit down. And while they're barely able to move, someone says, you know, we're not really doing good here. We're not doing well. This is a day of good tidings, and we keep it to ourselves. You and I are living in the age of grace, and the good news of God has been presented to us, and we have embraced it. We've welcomed it by faith. It now needs to ring out from us from our lives. I think it was Gandhi who said to a Christian who tried to witness to him, you show me your redeemed life, then I'll believe in your redeemer. Oh, if our lives were mimicking Jesus, the echo could be heard all over the world. Share what you have received. That's what Paul said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that you will speak to us today with encouragement. We're not all we should be. We're far from perfect. But by your grace, you're doing some wonderful things here at South. And yet we need to grow more. If we can say we're well-grounded, we must say we need to keep growing. And while we have a testimony in this place, it could be more effective in Lansing and Michigan and even around the world if we would band together as believers who live like Jesus. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. And for those who don't know Christ, may they turn and trust him. In Jesus' name, amen.